Hey, it's Matt Robeson. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I just finished up having a great conversation with a previous guest on this show, Dr. Daniel Cox, who's a social science researcher. He looks at polling data, but he also looks at a lot of deeper survey research and social science research to try and understand what's going on in society and politics. It's just catnip for me. We had such a good conversation, I decided to break it up into two parts. So I'm bringing you the first part today. We got into some interesting politics of the moment type questions about why, if Republicans are so nutty, and they are, are Democrats and Republicans tied in how people think about the parties? Why are they both so unpopular? We also got into why is Ron DeSantis so darn unpopular? There's actually a pretty straightforward reason for that, but he brought some numbers to the table that I thought were interesting. And then we got into a topic I really like, which is why is Donald Trump maybe a lot weaker than it appears at face value? So I hope you enjoy all of this. We'll bring you the second part tomorrow where we have a whole bunch of broader questions to dive into. And with that, here we go. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson, and we are available wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. Thrilled to have back on the show, Dr. Daniel Cox. That sounds like Dr. Richard Kimball. He's a previous guest on the show, director of the Center on American Life at the American Enterprise Institute, a really fascinating think tank in Washington. You're actually a think tank in that you have many different thoughts. I used to work for a think tank that had only really one fresh idea to offer, and I called it more of a thought tank. Dr. Cox's work is frequently featured in The Atlantic, CNN, and The Washington Post. Welcome back. Great to be here. You have done so much interesting stuff since we last had you on. You've done some focused stuff on politics. You've done some broader stuff that goes, let's see what I'm about to do here, beyond politics. So let's start focused. Let's do the politics stuff first, and then we can go a little bit broader. You tweeted a really interesting and a little disturbing finding for the Democrats in our listenership. It's new survey research that Americans' views of both major parties remain more unfavorable than favorable. But your observation was, and I'm quoting here, for the first time in my polling career, Democrats and Republicans are equally unpopular. The more than decades-long Democratic advantage has disappeared. What's up with that? Yeah, as you noted, it's not great news for the Democratic Party, but not totally surprising either, I think. Uh, it's a relatively recent shift. So now I think Pew found that roughly six in 10 Americans have an unfavorable view of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and roughly four in 10 favorable. They're in both in the same place in terms of how the public perceives them. And it, it makes some sense if you look at the party leadership, whether it's Trump, who's at this point, right, still the most important figure in the GOP, and Joe Biden, who's the Democratic president, both are relatively unpopular among the, among the public. You look at the way that they've legislated, Americans haven't been overly impressed with Biden's agenda. I think some of that probably due to the fact that there's a lot of just ignorance about what he's actually done. But I think also there you know, are really significant uh, class divides and views of who the Biden administration is actually helping. And then on the Republican side, I think that the GOP doesn't even have a, a party platform at this point. And so it's whatever emerges from the, the loudest members in the caucus and from Trump over social media. And I think that's, we've gotten to a point where the public's tuned all this stuff out. It just all this kind of negativity on both sides. And you're seeing for the first time too, that 
the highest number I think on record at Pew that Pew's looked at says that you know neither party really represents them. I have a theory about all of this. I think the media is very much the culprit here. And by the media, I do mean the full spectrum of the media. It's long been my contention that the Democratic Party has a rougher go of it in the media than Republicans, because Republicans benefit from a, a media environment where they have staunch defenders and some would argue propagandists working to advance their narrative and attack Democrats. I'm talking about Fox News, obviously, but I'm also talking about the more than 1,500 conservative radio stations, their dominance on social media and web traffic. It's just an unimpeachable fact that I'm going to call it conservative media to be generous about it, but those media outlets, which are negative about the president and the Democratic Party, have an advantage. And it's 100% vitriol all the time against Democrats, whereas the mainstream media, Mark Jacob, the former Chicago Tribune editor, has been a regular guest on my show, and he has been pointing this out relentlessly on Twitter, just headline by headline, that it's a lot of both sides-isms. And so what you end up with is mainstream media covering the Democrats and giving kind of 50-50 treatment, right-wing media covering Donald Trump and the Republican Party and giving 100% pro-Trump treatment. And it's what Americans get is a pretty nasty brew. That's my contention. What do you make of that? I think that's a reasonable argument. And I think there's something else worth considering as well, that in the modern era, at least, the Democrats have are more associated with pro-government initiatives, right? They invest more in the institutions of government. They care more about its functioning and getting stuff done through government policies. And I think for a lot of Republicans, there's talk of dismantling various agencies and departments. And if you view government as the root of all the problems that we're having in this country, then yeah, anything that government does is by definition bad. So you have one side who are saying, no, government shouldn't really be doing anything or very little, and it's the problem and we shouldn't be doing it. And the other side saying, no, government should be doing something. I think this is the real problem with the current Democratic Party in terms of their political fortunes is who is the party representing? What Whose interests are, are being represented? And I think increasingly, as my colleague Matt talks about, I think working class voters are, are seeing a Democratic Party that is not representing their views and interests. And you're seeing Trump primarily reaping the, the benefits of that. Rui makes a really important point when he talks about the Fox News fallacy, which is just because Fox News is saying it doesn't mean that it's wrong. And Democrats' inherent knee-jerk reaction is, it's on Fox, so it's all trumped up. See what I did there? And that may be true. Like when Fox News goes on their jihads about like schools are trying to turn your kids gay and, and whatever it is that they're pushing, that may be an engineered construct for propaganda purposes. It may be. It's also resonating. And there's something to it. And I think as a party, Democrats do tend to dismiss too easily and overlook too easily. We'll, we'll circle back to this idea when we get into one of your fascinating broad pieces of research in a second. I want to talk about something you wrote in August, which is the role of likability in politics. Because 
one of the things that you and I were talking about off the air before we got started is that there is so much negativity in political discourse and in media these days and in everything I was just pointing out from especially right-wing media, but let's face it, mainstream media too. It's a lot of this is bad, but this is bad. And so in that kind of environment, voters tend to not want to engage with, well, what is your position on school choice or housing affordability or whatever other issue they tell pollsters really matters to them. They tend to default to likability. And one thing you wrote is Rhonda's his big challenge is this guy is let's say personality challenged. He doesn't seem to really like people and the feeling is very mutual. What, what did you find in looking at the data on this? Let's take a break, we'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. You can listen to The Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of The Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it seems in, in some ways obvious, but I hadn't seen anyone really engage with this issue of likability. And we have all these poll questions about, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of various candidates? There's other ways of getting at it as well. And if you look at one of the reasons I think people like Trump or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or George W. Bush were successful is I think they really relished the opportunity with engaging with people. In, and albeit in very different ways, I, I think Trump really enjoys the kind of adulation and these this kind of love that his uh, followers uh, throw at him. Uh, but but I think it is genuine in many uh, respects, and I think people can see that it's not something that's easy to fake. And I think it, it ties in much more closely to him. Say, wow, if this person is so engaged and really enjoying you know the people that are attending his events his speeches, then, right, he, he must be looking out for our interests. He must care about us. He's, he'll defend us against our political enemies. And I think Joe Biden, for at least through most of his career, I would say, sort of shared that kind of idea where he also liked engaging with folks. There were all these memes that, that I think that The Onion and other, other folks produced. I think it was mostly during his vice presidency about average Joe working on his his Corvette and talking to folks. And there's a, there's pictures of him sometimes awkwardly engaging with voters. Might make you somewhat uncomfortable. But again, I think there was a, a genuine enjoyment that he was getting. And that is something that is just absolutely absent when you look at the way Ron DeSantis engages with, with voters. Even voters that are supporting him you just look at a guy that's not really having a good time. And you might think it doesn't really matter. We're not hiring uh, a best friend or a buddy, right? This is someone that we want to run the country, the most important job in the world. And it really shouldn't matter. But it is an incredibly personal decision. And most Americans are not policy wonks. We're, we're not really following closely a lot of the policy debates. In fact, these kind of feelings that we get from candidates become more and more important. It's incredibly ingrained in we're social animals and when someone is just cold to you not interested in you you can tell you pick up on this and of course we've talked about this in other episodes of this show when i do the roundtable i was a longtime chief of staff and political operative in new hampshire and my 
co-panelist is former New Hampshire Congressman Paul Hodes and a Republican political consultant, Alicia Preston. We talk about the New Hampshire experience and there's all this video that's coming of Ron DeSantis, the, the campaign trail in places like the Red Arrow Diner in Manchester, which I gotta tell you, I'm sorry, Red Arrow. I'm not looking for your sponsorship on this. Your food is disgusting, okay? I've been there many times and that's one of the reasons I have so much gray hair. It has literally contributed to killing me. And there's this video of him coming into places like this where you get to show interest in people and he's hello human person i would like to shake hands with you it's it's uncomfortable and of course we've had the political blogger carter krishnire on this show as well talking about he knows ron DeSantis pretty well and this is one of the least comfortable human beings in interpersonal interaction that he's ever met do i think that this should matter that much as a way to choose our leaders i do not i don't think it's particularly indicative of whether someone can be a a really good president. But I got to tell you, your research and your writing does suggest to me that it does matter politically. So I, I guess I better get with the program. Yeah. And if you look at the, the unsuccessful candidates from John Kerry, Al Gore to Hillary Clinton, I think they struggled with this. And I think there's been research that suggests some there's gender issues and sexism involved in this too, where women have to seem more likable, also more competent, just because of gender biases that that many Americans have, but I think it's fundamental and true for all candidates, right? That you've got to at least get to a threshold here where people don't think that you actively dislike them and can enjoy the idea of engaging with them. So I think that that piece of it, I think is just important. I will tell you that when I met Bill Clinton as a young volunteer, 1992, and I went backstage and I got an opportunity to shake his hand and he did this thing. He did this like magnetism thing where I stuck out my hand. I was real nervous. I was like 18 years old and I was like, governor, and, I, and he, he grabbed my hand and he did this Clinton-esque pull me in while he's shaking and thanks, buddy. And I got to say in that moment, he seemed really thankful. And he was looking at me in a way that made me feel like he was uninterested in anything else going on around him. Does that mean that he made a better president because of that? No. Did that make me as an 18 year old, newly eligible voter want to vote for him? Heck yes, it did. And I'll tell you that my experiences with John McCain and Barack Obama could not have been more different. They are not warm or were not in Senator McCain's case, not warm people, but I guess maybe they benefited from facing off against one another. I'll tell you someone else who is not a warm person, Donald Trump. He does not exude that thanks buddy energy. And yet people seem to freaking love the guy. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. You made a case that I, you wrote this up a few weeks ago that Trump's position is weaker in the Republican primary than it appears. I love this case. Of course I love this case. I'm a Democrat. Make the case. Why is that? Yeah, so the polls show him by far the leader in the GOP primary at this stage. The same polls are showing Biden and Trump in head-to-head matchups at even, and maybe a couple of polls showing Trump even leading by a point or two, although it's generally within the margin of error. But I think a lot of the current polling, uh, Trump's political position, if you look at things like ability, I think Trump's going to have some problems, right? He's never had received a majority support from the voters. 
So I think even in 2016, he got 46% support. So he's won through the Electoral College and by uh, cobbling together a coalition in, in the right states. But again, he's never been really all that impressive in terms of the, the popular support that he's able to muster. And that's shown in a lot of polling, whether it's favorability or, or job approval. Um, he was one of our- And you point our out presidents. that among the voters, and this is David Leonard research that you cite, but you point out that about 20% of voters support neither Trump nor President Biden. And in the last election, those types of voters broke heavily for Biden. And it's hard to see that why, like what is different now that would cause those important kind of key voters to switch positions. Like Trump is not doing anything to change his position. One of the things I think that's really, he's benefited from is that so many of his, the Republican contenders for the nomination have just avoided attacking him. Uh, they're going after each other and they're going at him around the edges saying, hey, saying, oh, we need someone who's younger or we need someone who's more popular with the voters. But they're not choosing to attack some real weaknesses uh, in terms of his his legacy. What did he actually do as, as president? The only real thing, and it, this is an important thing, but was the installation of judges, right? He confirmed, was able to install a lot of judges and obviously three Supreme Court, Supreme Court uh, justices. So like that matters. But in terms of his legacy, the, the wall and other things, he doesn't have a lot to show. I think the other thing is the legal trouble, right? The, I, I find arguments that's going to help Trump in the primary utterly unconventional. Convincing. Thank you. We're we're just at the the start of a lot of these cases, and so we'll need to see where they go. But I think there's a, a couple of things that are worth considering here. First is the logistical headaches that this is going to uh, make for the campaign. He's going to have to show up in court. He's going to have to be engaged in at least reviewing some stuff. He's obviously got a, a bevy of lawyers to help him out and navigate all, all the, the legal troubles he's facing. But it's still going to require some amount of his attention. That's going to take him off the campaign trail. He's already complaining about this. This is already on his mind. He's tweeting about it. He's posting about it on True Social. So it's at the very least, a, a major distraction for him. The other thing I mentioned is the free media that Trump really benefited from in 2015, uh, that I think is not going to be, he's not going to have the same level of advantage uh, this time around. And the other thing that we've seen too is that for Trump, the more he's covered, the more he alienates this middle slice of voters who just have had enough, right? They know him, they're familiar with his shtick, and for the most part, they don't really like it. So the more he's exposed, the sort of more problems it creates for those kind of voters. And those are the voters he's actually going to need if he's going to win an election. I loved reading your piece because anytime you get a smart social science researcher, a PhD, Dr. Daniel Cox, agreeing with things that I'm writing, I feel a lot better. I feel like you're providing validation. I am baffled as to why the Republicans have concluded that they cannot go after Trump. They seem to believe that they will, as you write, alienate elements of their base and foreclose a pathway for themselves. And so they've put themselves into a prisoner's dilemma, right? They're just hoping that the, the meek shall inherit the MAGA and that if they can just hang back long enough, somehow magic will happen, he will get stopped, and then they will be there to inherit all of his voters. It will not happen if you do not do it. And there is an opening there. 25% of Republican primary voters say that they are already dead set against Trump. An additional 37% indicate that they are open to voting for someone else. That is 62% of voters who could go for someone else. That is, unless my math is wrong here, you're the stats guy, a majority of Republicans. The votes are there. 
And I, I also am baffled, as you say, by this argument that these indictments, the 91 felony counts pending against him, somehow help him. We've already seen, and you cite this research, softening in the numbers, both among the general electorate and among the Republican primary electorate, in people who say he did nothing wrong, in people mm -hmm. who are favorably disposed toward him or who feel okay about his legal status. This is breaking through. So you've got an available pool of voters in the Republican primary electorate who are opening open to opposing him. You've got a message that breaks through to those voters. And you've got the fact that he's taken off the board. As you say, he's distracted by all these legal problems and he's getting less free media, $5 billion apparently got in 2016. He's not getting that advantage this time around. The conditions are there. It takes doing it. And so I co-sign your argument. I think he's more vulnerable, but it needs to be done. It needs to happen. And the one chink in the armor of our joint argument here is it will take Republicans standing up and doing it. And that's a big if. Yeah, no, I think that's the ball game right there, right? That there has to be a willingness among other Republicans to actually go after him, mount an affirmative case, which doesn't just mean about telling about well, talking about all the great things that you're going to do, but talk about why the, the the leading contender who's by by 20, 30, 40 points, leading all the rest of the Republican candidates in the polls is unacceptable, right? That that the, the GOP needs a new vision, needs a new leadership. And until that case is affirmatively made it's really Trump's race to lose. It is baffling to me. When you do debate prep with candidates, you remind them that they may have one minute of FaceTime. And what voters hear is very limited, right? You've got to be crystal clear about your message. You've got to talk. You've got to be relentless about, because you've got brain space in your audience for just one thing to get across. This is actually what sank Marco Rubio. He tried to be so, in 2016, he tried to be so on message that Chris Christie was able to make fun of him for being a robot, but he was trying to do the best practice. And so I just do not understand the Republican candidates who get, are, they're already polling in the single digits. They get very limited brain time with their intended voters. And what do they spend the majority of their time doing? Defending Donald Trump. It's, it is so bass backwards. It is so insane as a political strategy, but hey. You're taking that one really potent line of attack off the table. And yes, are you going to convince the diehard Trump supporters that he acted with disregard in terms of the document storage and it was impetuous and he made just bad decisions there? Probably not, but there's a lot of folks that are going to be willing to be convinced, especially if you have 62%. Republicans all saying the same thing, I think people are going to, to, to listen and be like, okay, yeah, that actually, maybe we, we don't want someone like that if, if we have really good alternatives. Exactly. And if, if you could get other Republican leaders, Mr. Profiles encourage Mitch McConnell, for example, to pipe up and give you a little air cover and give you a little bit of permission structure mentally among your, yeah, it's okay. We can criticize Donald Trump. It's all right. The scary man is not going to hurt you. That would go a long way, but I guess we can keep shouting this and we can keep throwing numbers at these folks and they can keep running for vice president. That's it for part one of the show with Dr. Daniel Cox. 
Don't forget to leave us a rating and review. That helps us out a lot. And of course, make sure you're subscribed, follow whatever they call it on whatever platform you're on so that you get part two of this. You're not going to want to miss it. There's some really fascinating stuff that that he's bringing forward. So I hope you'll check that out and we will see you tomorrow. 